Hello, and welcome to podcast number 11 of English 264 Online. Today's episode will look at Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning, a, the first husband and wife team that we have looked at, uh, although we have seen a brother and sister pair with William and Dorothy Wordsworth. These two poets provide an interesting contrast both to each other and to Tennyson, whom we read in the previous podcast. Robert Browning's approach to poetry is quite different from Tennyson's. Uh, not the musical long line that we heard in Tennyson, but a much harsher, um, much more prosaic style in some ways. Elizabeth Barrett brings a different gender's perspective on the role of poetry, and Elizabeth Barrett and Robert Browning differ in their idea of what poets ought to have as a subject matter, and particularly about whether poets should write about the past or the present. These two poets also provide an interesting perspective on the rise and fall of poetical reputations, and we've talked before about um, a poet's prestige as being something like a, a stock on the stock market. It goes up or down, not necessarily dependent on the value of the poet, him or herself, but on the needs of the audience, on uh, extrinsic factors. We'll address those issues after a little bit of background information about the two authors. Elizabeth Barrett, raised in a, um, a well-to-do family uh, whose money came primarily from slaveholdings in the Caribbean, uh, at least in her, her grandfather's time, uh, in Jamaica specifically, was unusually well-educated for a woman. She had private tutors in Greek and Latin and classical philosophy, and like Felicia Hemans, who we saw before, was something of a poetical prodigy, publishing her first volume in, at the age of 13. By the age of 35, she was one of the most popular poets in England, but she was also an invalid, had been bedridden for years. Um, her father, for reasons that critics have not exactly uh, agreed upon, forbid any of his children to marry. And so she and her siblings all lived at home with the family under very strict autocratic uh, rule. Robert Browning was also from a wealthy background. His father worked for the Bank of England, and also, um, until he was in his mid-thirties, lived um, primarily at home with his parents and his sister, except for one year in which he attended the University of London to go to college. He spent uh, his entire life, his early education all came from that, and he was primarily self-educated. His father had a very large library of some 10,000 volumes uh, in which Robert was allowed to read freely. One of the writers whom Robert read was Elizabeth Barrett, uh, and in 1845, he wrote her a fan letter expressing his love for her verse and also for her. And she, who was much the more famous of the two, um, Robert Browning's poetry was not well received, uh, was not popular at all. Uh, he had written a number of plays, none of which were produced or uh, none of which were successful. And um, she was somewhat interested and, and somewhat wary of this younger man. He was six years younger than she. Uh, she was nearly 40 at the time. Um, who he was and what he wanted. Uh, she was an heiress, and that was of some concern for her. But in any case, she invited him to visit. They began uh, both a correspondence and uh, conversations, and over time fell in love. And it's one of the great love stories of English literature. The sonnet sequence uh, called Sonnets from the Portuguese was her record of the early relationship at various stages. And we see examples from that in the excerpts from our book. Um, in 1846, because they knew they could not get permission to marry, they eloped. Uh, they went off to Italy together, and in uh, an astonishing recovery, Elizabeth Barrett was, became active, uh, and not only that, but they had a, a son together, and lived together for, 
for many years, a decade and a half, before she finally died of the lung ailments that she had been plagued with for most of her life. At least at first, Robert Browning was more widely known as Elizabeth Barrett's husband than she was known as Mrs. Browning. And although he was somewhat bothered by this, um, and it did put something of a crimp in his productivity as a writer, um, he was very happily married, as, as was she. Later, after her death, uh, he became much more popular as a poet. There were Browning societies both in England and Canada and the United States. Um, Mark Twain was one notable fan of, of Browning's verse and claimed that he could read Browning's poetry so well that even Browning could understand what it was about. Uh, Browning was notably obscure for most readers. After the 20th century, Robert Browning became much the more famous of the two, in part because he was very influential on a number of 20th century poets in, in terms of a, a style and approach. And uh, Elizabeth Barrett's stock dropped as his stock rose, uh, so that if you would have looked at a literature anthology in the 1960s, perhaps, or 1950s, Elizabeth Barrett, if she were represented at all, would have been represented perhaps by some of the sonnets from the Portuguese and then primarily because it shed reflected glory on, on Robert Browning. Her stock value as a writer rose again in the, in the late 1960s uh, and really throughout the 70s and 80s, uh, primarily with the rediscovery of Aurora Lee by feminist critics who were looking for earlier writers who they thought perhaps had been ignored and who had something to say about gender issues. And certainly in the excerpts that we have from in our anthology, Aurora Lee certainly does that. And so today you have a, a much higher representation by Elizabeth Barrett than you would have had three decades ago. I'd like to begin my discussion of her works by looking at the sonnets from the Portuguese. Uh, since they are eminently quotable and, and very famous, uh, certainly the sonnet 43 is. Although sonnet sequences had been a popular literary genre in the Elizabethan age, uh, after the time of Shakespeare, they had not been done really and the sonnets from the Portuguese are the first English sonnet sequence since Shakespeare's time. It consists of 44 sonnets which record the stages of their love, um, and it's supposed to be, but was not in fact, a translation of Renaissance Portuguese love poems. Um, apparently Robert Browning's pet name for Elizabeth Barrett was My Little Portuguese, and so there's something of an inside joke between the two that these are called sonnets from the Portuguese. I think number 21 is a very nice example of one of her poems, and I like to focus for a moment on that one. She writes, Say over again and yet once over again that thou dost love me, though the word repeated should seem a cuckoo song as thou dost treat it. Remember, never to the hill or plain, valley and wood, without her cuckoo strain comes the fresh spring and all her green completed. Beloved, I, amid the darkness greeted by a doubtful spirit voice, in that doubt's pain cry, speak once more, thou lovest. Who can fear too many stars, though each in heaven shall roll, too many flowers, though each shall crown the year? Say thou dost love me, love me, love me, toll the silver iterance, only minding, dear, to love me also in silence with thy soul. It's helpful when discussing a sonnet to try to determine what the problem is, what the issue is that this particular sonnet tries to address. Uh, in this case, it's the question of among, between two lovers, can you say, I love you too many times? Can there be too many I love you's? Also pay attention when poets mention birds, as I've talked before with the romantics. Here the bird mentioned is the cuckoo. Uh, the cuckoo's song is cuckoo, cuckoo. Um, it only has that repetitive song. 
Cuckoos are also notable for two other factors, uh, one bad, one good. The bad one is that cuckoos lay their eggs in other birds' nests, and so when their eggs hatch after being um, nurtured by the other bird, the cuckoo, which is larger usually than the, the fledglings in, in that um, species, pushes all the other little baby birds out of the nest and kills them and, and takes all the food. Um, on the other hand, cuckoos also are harbingers of spring, at least in Europe. They're the first bird that appears when spring is coming back, after winter. Uh, they, their migratory patterns indicate the beginning of the spring season. This is the quality of the cuckoo that she's referring to here, uh, the song and the harbinger of spring. So in effect, she's saying it, it's okay to be repetitive uh, when something so positive is coming from it. And for her, this, this spring, this rebirth in her life brought her out of, out of bed, brought her out of her illness, uh, saved her from her, her family, from her father in particular, and brought her a great joy in her life, which she had not had before. The second half of the poem says, can you have too many I love you's, and uh, implies, or, uh, and asserts you can't have too many stars, you can't have too many flowers, you can't have too many I love you's, as long as you mean it, as long as you say it in silence with your soul and don't just repeat it mechanically. Sonnets are by their nature lyric poetry. That means they are intended to be personal, or at least apparently personal expressions of thought and feeling, of memory. They tend to be brief and, and tend to, to evoke a, an emotion or a feeling. A very different kind of poetry is narrative poetry, and I'd like to turn to an example of that next with Aurora Lee. Aurora Lee is a long narrative poem in blank verse. Uh, it's like a novel, it's certainly in, in length and in terms of a plot. Uh, it's when it was originally completed, it was 360 pages long, uh, so it was novel length, and consisted of a number of plot complications uh, uh, revolving around Aurora Lee. Uh, the orphan daughter of an English father and an Italian mother brought back to England to be raised by her English aunt. Her cousin, Romney Lee, proposes marriage uh, and asks her to come join him on his quest to improve society through various uh, organizations. Uh, she rejects him. She wants to be an independent woman, wants to be a poet, um, but eventually they do end up together uh, after a, a series of uh, adventures and events along the way. One section of this poem, which has become of a particular interest for social and historical critics today, is the section when she talks about Aurora's education once she comes to England. Um, this is on page 536 in our book. When she first arrives from Italy, she meets her aunt, and she says this of her. She had lived, we'll say, a harmless life. She called a virtuous life, a quiet life which was not life at all, but that she had not lived enough to know and you get this sense of, of very different mentalities, very different mental doors of perception, to use a Blakeian phrase. Uh, auroras are wide open. The, her aunt tries her hardest to close them and, and to make, them make her conform to her ideas of what uh, an English lady ought to be like. And there's a long passage about her education, which is, primarily consists of um, so-called accomplishments for young ladies. Uh, none of which are, are productive or useful or use any of her intellectual gifts, but only uh, fill up time and take up space and make her more marriageable. She uh, concludes this long catalog of her education on page 538, saying, By the way, the works of women are symbolical. We sew, sew, prick our fingers, dull our sight, producing what? A pair of slippers, sir, to put on when you're weary, or a stool to stumble over and vex you. Curse that stool! 
or else at best a cushion where you lean and sleep and dream of something we are not but would be for your sake. Alas, alas, this hurts most, this, that after all we are paid the worth of our work, perhaps. The point here is that women are paid the worth of their work. Their work is worthless. They're paid nothing for it. They produce nothing of nothing that's wanted or, or nothing that's useful to anyone. Um, and they turn themselves into some ideal through warping their gifts and their nature. And even, and worst of all, she implies here that men don't even want what women turn themselves into, and they dream of being married to something else. So it's a very bleak and satirical view of the formative education of and the opportunities for women, the limited opportunities for women at this time. In a final section in our anthology, on uh, book five of Aurora Lee on page 552, she addresses the issue of what a poets ought to write about. Uh, and particularly here she's satirizing poets who uh, revered the past. So to some extent, perhaps Tennyson in um, The Idols of the King or uh, Sir Walter Scott who wrote about uh, ancient days. And she says, the critics say that epics have died out with Agamemnon and the goat-nursed gods. I'll not believe it. I could never deem, as Payne Knight did, the mythic mountaineer who traveled higher than he was born to live and showed sometimes the gorder in his throat, discoursing of an image seen through fog, that Homer's heroes measured twelve feet high. They were but men. His Helen's hair turned gray like any plain Miss Smith's who wears a front, and Hector's infant, and Hector's infant whimpered at a plume as yours last Friday at a turkey cock. All actual heroes are essential men, and all men possible heroes. Every age, heroic in proportions, double-faced, looks backward and before, expects a morn and claims an epos. Aye, but every age appears to souls who live in it, ask Carlyle, most unheroic. Ours, for instance, ours. The thinkers scout it and the poets abound who scorn to touch it with a fingertip. A pewter age, mixed metal, silver washed, an age of scum spooned off the richer past, an age of patches for old gabardines, an age of mere transition, meaning not, except what... what succeeds must shame it quite if God please. That's wrong thinking to my mind, and wrong thoughts make poor poets. And she calls for poets to write about their own age, to, to express, if at all possible, the day-to-day -day activities of the age to demonstrate the heroism possible in any age, and particularly even in this industrialized, urbanized, mundane day-to-day -day existence which uh, the Victorians thought they lived in and calls for, uh, as Aurora Lee is, contemporary poets addressing contemporary issues. Now, on a first impression, it might seem that Elizabeth Barrett's husband, Robert Browning, approaches poetry in an entirely different way, in that almost, almost all of the poems that are in the reading assignment for today are set not in the present age, but in the past, uh, with the exception of Perfuria's Lover and perhaps uh, Love Among the Ruins, all of the others are set in a medieval or renaissance setting. Fralippo Lippi, Andrea del Sarto, My Last Duchess, The Bishop Orders His Tomb, all of these are set in the past and might seem to have very little relevance to the Victorian concerns that uh, Elizabeth Barrett was talking about. I'd like to begin by discussing My Last Duchess, which is a classic example of Robert Browning's approach to the dramatic monologue. We looked at dramatic monologues previously with Tennyson and Ulysses, and here we see another example where uh, the speaker is, is specifically not the author. 
it's specifically not a lyric poem where you're encouraged to identify the speaker as the author. And in fact, Browning's characterization of his poems was poetry always dramatic in principle and so many utterances of so many imaginary persons, not mine. Like Keats' idea of the chameleon poet, it's often very difficult to determine from reading these poems what Browning's attitude might be. And that, in part, is because he's primarily fascinated in the movements of the mind and how characters reveal themselves, how they give themselves away, uh, how they rationalize, how they uh, minimize or, or deny their, the wrong of their actions. He referred to it sometimes as a scientific interest in evil, which he thought his, his wife lacked. And Oscar Wilde characterized Browning's approach, um, his fascination with the workings of the mind, in this way. Quote, it was not thought that fascinated him, but the process by which thought moves. It was the machine he loved, not what the machine makes. The method by which the fool arrives at his folly was as dear to him as the ultimate wisdom of the wise. Now one question critics have is whether the reader is supposed to be able to tell the fools from the wise men, and, and how you can tell that since there's no external commentary, there's no external source. Uh, and so what you generally find in the dramatic monologues of Browning is a tendency both to sympathize with the speaker because you're seeing the world through that person's perspective, you're inhabiting that person's mind, and also judgment because often, oftentimes the speaker is limited or wrong or insane or evil, um, and all of these tend to cause you to distance yourself, yourself from what the speaker says. That distancing effect is certainly clear, in, or should be, I hope, in My Last Duchess, uh, spoken by a Duke of Ferrara, uh, a duchy in Italy before that country was united into what we would think of today as Italy. Uh, it's said in the, middle, in the Renaissance time in the 16th century, may or may not be specifically referring to Alfonso II, a particular Duke of Ferrara, as your footnote points out. And this Duke reveals very shocking facts about himself and about his past. That's my last duchess painted on the wall, looking as if she were alive. I call that piece a wonder now. Fra Pandolf's hands worked busily a day, and there she stands. Will please you sit and look at her? I said Fra Pandolf by design, for never read st strangers like you that pictured countenance, the depth and passion of its earnest glance. But to myself they turned, since none puts by the curtain I have drawn for you but I, and seemed as they would ask me, if they durst, how such a glance came there. So, not the first are you to turn and ask thus. Sir, t'was not her husband's presence only called that spot of joy into the duchess' cheek. Perhaps Fra Pandolf chanced to say, her mantle laps over my lady's wrist too much, or paint must never hope to reproduce the faint half-flush that dies along her throat. Such stuff was courtesy, she thought, and cause enough for calling up that spot of joy. She had a heart, how shall I say, too soon made glad, too easily impressed. She liked whate'er she looked on, and her looks went everywhere. Sir, t'was all one. My favor at her breast, the dropping of the daylight in the west, the bough of cherries some officious fool broke in the orchard for her, the white mule she rode with round the terrace, all and each would draw from her alike the approving speech, or blush at least. She thanked men, good, but thanked somehow, I know not how, as if she ranked my gift of a nine hundred years old name with anybody's gift, who'd stoop to blame this sort of trifling, even had you skill in speech which I have not, to make your will quite clear to such an one and say, just this or that in you disgusts me, here you miss or there exceed the mark, and if she let herself be lessened so, nor plainly set her wits to yours forsooth and made excuse, 
Even then would be some stooping, and I choose never to stoop. Oh, sir, she smiled, no doubt, whene'er I passed her. But who passed without much the same smile? This grew, I gave commands. Then all smiles stopped together. There she stands, as if alive. Well, please you rise. We'll meet the company below, then. I repeat, the count your master's no munificence is ample warrant that no just pretense of mine for dowry will be disallowed, though his fair daughter's self, as I avowed at starting, is my object. Nay, we'll go together down, sir. Notice Neptune, though, taming a seahorse, thought a rarity, which cause of Innsbruck cast in bronze for me. Like most of Browning's dramatic monologues, you have a particular speaker on a particular occasion, at a particular point in history and, and a particular societal culture, talking to a, a, a definite auditor, someone who is listening, um, and revealing often more about himself than he intended. Uh, in this case, he's the Duke of Ferrara. He's talking to an envoy from the Count who is, whose daughter he is making arrangements to marry. Uh, they're trying to determine uh, the marriage price, the dowry. He's showing the envoy around his palace, uh, as showing him his art collection, uh, and has just shown him a painting done by Fra Pandolf, uh, before which he has a curtain, so he can control who sees this smile now and who doesn't. Um, and he tells him an amusing anecdote about the, the painting and how it came about, and then he goes and gives him the rest of the tour and shows him the statue, that cause of Innsbruck, of Neptune taming a seahorse. And all of these details are significant. You get a remarkable sense of the Duke and his assumptions and his view of the world uh, in that he's telling this to the envoy um, about what he's had done to his previous wife, uh, his last duchess, um, in preparation for his next duchess. Now, a number of things you don't know exactly. Uh, you don't know exactly what happened. He, he gave commands and all smiles stopped together. Uh, the duchess, former duchess is dead because he, he mentions the painting as looking like her as if she were alive, which means that she's not. Uh, it's not clear whether he had her killed or poisoned or locked away until she was dead. In any case, he seems responsible for that. And her great flaw was she smiled too much and inappropriately, and, and not only for him, which gave the impression to him that he that she did not take his 900-years-old name seriously enough. He didn't tell her, apparently. He didn't argue with her. That would be stooping, and he chooses never to stoop. And so he just gave commands, and all smiles stopped together. You also don't know what the reaction of the envoy is likely to be, uh, if he's going to, and why he's telling this at all. Um, one possibility is that he's telling this in a mistake. He's letting too much of his past slip out as he's giving the tour of his art collection. Um, or he's telling this specifically to the envoy to send a message to the count so that his next duchess will be better prepared for his, his expectations. And you don't know what the envoy's reaction is. If he'll go back to the count and say, you can't let your daughter marry this madman, this monster, or if he'll go back and say, now here's a man who really knows how to treat a lady, um, you don't know. And this combination of all the facts that you are given and then the, the gaps that you have to fill in with your own imagination create uh, an effect different from almost any poet before this, with perhaps Shakespeare as, as one lone exception. Now one might wonder, why Robert Browning would think it necessary to satirize the 16th century Italian nobility. Uh, that seems to be a long-gone target that is no longer relevant at all. Um, and so it may, you, you could argue that, unlike Elizabeth Barrett Browning, who addressed contemporary issues, Robert Browning seems to be retreating from them or evading them by going into the past. 
On the other hand, it's also possible that he is addressing contemporary issues, but through the mask of this character. If you see the gender relations between men and women, if you see the, uh, the power distinctions between men and women, and we'll talk about that more in our next podcast installment, um, the legal status of women, uh, particularly of wives, was markedly different from that of men. Um, so if you see the, this power relationship between the Duke and his last duchess as both in some ways similar to the power relation between husbands and wives in 19th century England, and also as something that you're supposed to reject, then you could make the case, perhaps, that Browning is trying to address contemporary issues, but through a, uh, a medium of the past, allowing the reader to achieve a certain um, objectivity uh, and then perhaps stopping and thinking about how this might still be applicable to, to their day-to-day -day life. I think the, a similar process is at work in the Bishop Orders' his tomb at St. Praxed's Church, which, even though it's set in, set in Rome 15-, uh, and even though, as you'll see in your, um, in your footnote on page 665, John Ruskin argued that Browning's poem sets up a perfect description of the Italian Renaissance, as um, he writes, I know of no other piece of modern English, prose or poetry, in which there is so much told as in these lines of the Renaissance spirit, its worldliness, inconsistency, pride, hypocrisy, ignorance of itself, love of art, of luxury, and of good Latin. It is nearly all that I have said of the central Renaissance in thirty pages of the Stones of Venice, put into as many lines, Browning's also being the antecedent work. And this may certainly be true. Uh, Ruskin was an expert on the Renaissance, would tend to recognize Renaissance characteristics when he saw them. On the other hand, most of those characteristics also seem typically Victorian. Um, again, it's worldliness, it's inconsistency, it's pride, it's hypocrisy, it's ignorance of itself, and it's love of art. Perhaps not the good Latin quite so much, but everything else is a, is a Victorian trait. You know, one might wonder why he would be satirizing the 16th century Catholic Church, um, but England was going through a great deal of religious turmoil at that time. The Oxford movement was an attempt, apparently at first, to re-spiritualize the Church of England, but the main leaders of that movement converted to Roman Catholicism around 1840s, early 1840s, about the same time this poem was written in 1844, and this may well be um, motivated by Browning's rejection of that of that movement uh, by characterizing the, the Catholic Church as uh, worldly and hypocritical through the character of the bishop, who is all of those things. Um, he's a terrible bishop. He's a terrible spiritual leader. Uh, but at the same time, he is sympathetic as a human being. And so you get both sympathy and judgment, uh, as I said, is a tendency in most of his dramatic monologues. I tend to see the two last poems in the reading as... Um, being particularly concerned with the nature of art and the nature of poetry. Um, in Fra Lippo Lippi, an early Renaissance painter who began, who was notable for um, a more realistic depiction of, of people than had been the case in medieval art. And in Andrea del Sarto, the so-called faultless painter, who was a contemporary of Michelangelo and of Raphael, um, who was seen at the time as their equal, but because of faults in his character and faults in his inspiration, never reached that level. Um, in these two poems, in these two painters, you see Browning addressing a number of issues about the nature of art and the nature of the artist. Uh, for example, 
Fralupo Lippi has been captured by the ninth century during the Carnival period, and he is telling about his life story. And in the context of this story, on page 679, he talks about his first uh, experience painting, um, painting what he had seen, painting people as he, as he noticed them, and his audience's reaction. Um, the, the monks at the monastery crowd around to look at it and to admire it. They, they get the uh, similarity of, of the people. They recognize their friends and relatives, um, the prior's niece, who's perhaps his mistress, uh, among them. But then the authorities come, the authorities in the monastery who are expecting art to look the way they expect art to look. And line 174 and following. The prior and the learned pulled a face and stopped all that in no time. How? What's here? Quite from the mark of painting, bless us all. Faces, arms, legs, and bodies like the true as much as P and P. It's devil's game. Your business is not to catch men with show, with homage to the perishable clay, but lift them over it, ignore it all, make them forget there's such a thing as flesh. Your business is to paint the souls of men, man's soul, and it's a fire, smoke. No, it's not. It's vapor done up like a newborn babe. In that shape, when you die, it leaves your mouth. It's... Well, what matters talking? It's the soul. Give us no more of body than shows soul. Here's Jada with his saints appraising God. That sets us praising. Why not stop with him? Why put all thoughts of praise out of our heads with wonder at lines, colors, and what not? Paint the soul. Never mind the legs and arms. Rub it all out. Try again a second time. Oh, that's that white, uh, oh, that white smallish female with the breast. She's just my niece. Herodias, I would say, who went and danced and got men's heads cut off. Have it all out. Now is this sense, I ask, Farlipu goes on, a fine way to paint soul by painting body so ill the eye can't stop there, must go farther and can't fear worse. Thus yellow does for white when what you put for yellow is simply black, and any sort of meaning looks intense when all beside itself means and looks not. Why can't a painter lift each foot in turn, left foot and right foot, go a double step, make his flesh liker and his soul more like, both in that order? Take the prettiest face, the prior's niece, patron saint. Is it so pretty you can't discover if it means hope, fear, sorrow, or joy? Won't beauty go with these? Suppose I've made her eyes all right and blue. Can't I take breath and try to add life's flash, and then add soul and heighten them threefold? Or say there's beauty with no soul at all. I never saw it. Put the case the same. If you get simple beauty and not else, you get about the best thing God invents. That's somewhat. And you'll find the soul you have missed within yourself when you return in thanks. Rub all out. Well, well, there's my life in short. And so the thing has gone on ever since. Now, what Browning is attempting to get across here is the transition in art from the Middle Ages to the Renaissance, this rediscovery of the body, rediscovery of the image, rediscovery of um, the, attempting in art to represent reality and to capture it. And I would argue that this is what he thinks he's doing in his poetry as well, capturing the mind, uh, moving, from be, moving beyond the body to capturing the nonlinear, irrational, circular, and self-rationalizing self uh, processes through which people present themselves and present their view of the world. They're all fallible, they're all flawed, but they're also all alive and they, they have this spark of life in them, which makes them like us. In the 20th century, Browning became one of the most influential of the Victorian poets on the moderns. Um, Ezra Pound praises Browning's, quote, bold obscurity, unquote, and he also explicitly makes the connection between what Browning was doing in his dramatic monologues and what T.S. Eliot does with um, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock or, or something like The Wasteland, um, where you're presenting voices, where you're presenting 
the uh, psychologically accurate process of, of the workings of the mind, uh, and in some sense Browning is a forerunner of the stream of consciousness that we'll see in, in a number of the modernist writers. I look forward to seeing your reaction to Robert Browning and Elizabeth Barrett Browning in your blogs and in the chat session for our class next week. We will continue our discussion of the Victorians, particularly talking about gender issues, in the next installment. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Yeah.